0: Section 1 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Chufi Galeazzi. The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. Chapter 22 The First Inauguration of Lincoln The Relief of Fort Sumter Seward's Ambition to Control the Administration Part 1 Daybreak of March 4, 1861, found the city of Washington astir. The Senate, which had met at 7 o'clock the night before, was still in session. Scores of persons who had come to see the inauguration of the first Republican president, and who had been unable to find other bed than the floor, were walking the streets. The morning trains were bringing new crowds. Added to the stir of those who had not slept through the night were sounds unusual in Washington the clatter of cavalry the tramp of soldiers all this morning bustle of the city must have reached the ears of the president-elect at his rooms in willard's hotel where from an early hour he had been at work an amendment to the constitution of the united states had passed the senate in the all-night session and as it concerned the subject of his inaugural he must incorporate a reference to it in the address then he had not replied to the note he had received two days before from mr seward asking to be released from his promise to accept the portfolio of state he could wait no longer i can't afford he said to mr nicolay his secretary to let seward take the first trick and he dispatched the following letter my dear sir your note of the second instant Asking to withdraw your acceptance of my invitation to take charge of the State Department was duly received. It is the subject of the most painful solicitude with me, and I feel constrained to beg you that you will countermand the withdrawal. The public interest, I think, demands that you should, and my personal feelings are deeply enlisted in the same direction. Please consider and answer by 9 a.m. tomorrow. Your Obedient Servant, A. Lincoln. At noon, Mr. Lincoln's work was interrupted. The President of the United States was announced. Mr. Buchanan had come to escort his successor to the Capitol. The route of the procession was the historic one over which almost every President since Jefferson had traveled to take his oath of office. But the scene Mr. Lincoln looked upon as his carriage rolled up the avenue was very different from that upon which one looks today no great blocks lined the streets instead the buildings were low and there were numerous vacant spaces instead of asphalt the carriage passed over cobblestones nor did the present stately and beautiful approach to the capital exist the west front rose abrupt and stiff from an unkept lawn the great building itself was still uncompleted and high above his head, Mr. Lincoln could see the swinging arm of an enormous crane rising from the unfinished dome. But, as he drove that morning from Willards to the Capitol, the president-elect saw far more significant sights than these. Closed about his carriage, so thickly, complained the newspapers, as to hide it from view, was a protecting guard. Stationed at intervals along the avenue were platoons of soldiers at every corner were mounted orderlies. On the very rooftops were groups of riflemen. When Lincoln reached the north side of the Capitol, where he descended to enter the building, he found a bored tunnel, strongly guarded at its mouth, through which he passed into the building. If he had taken pains to inquire what means had been provided for protecting his life while in the building, he would have been told that squads of riflemen were in each wing that under the platform from which he was to speak were fifty or sixty armed soldiers, that General Scott and two batteries of flying artillery were in adjacent streets, and that a ring of volunteers encircled the waiting crowd. The thoroughness with which these guards did their work may be judged by the experience which Colonel Clark E. Carr of Illinois tells. I was only a young man then, says Colonel Carr, and this was the first inauguration I had ever attended. I came because it was Lincoln's. For three years Lincoln had been my political idol, as he had been that of many young men in the West. The first debate I heard between him and Douglas had converted me from popular sovereignty, and after that I had followed him all over the state, so fascinated was I by his logic, his manner, and his character. Well, I went to Washington, but somehow in the interest of the procession, I failed to get to the Capitol in time to find a place within hearing distance. Thousands of people were packed between me and the stand. I did get, however, close to the high double fence, which had been built from the driveway to the north door. It suddenly occurred to me that if I could scale that wall, I might walk right in after the president, perhaps onto the very platform. It wasn't a minute before I shinned up and jumped into the tunnel. But before I lit on my feet, a half-dozen soldiers had me by leg and arms. I suppose they thought I was the agent of the long-talked-of plot to capture Washington and kill Mr. Lincoln. They searched me, and then started me to the mouth of the tunnel to take me to the guardhouse. But the crowd was so thick we couldn't get out. This gave me time, and I finally convinced them that it was really my eagerness to hear Mr. Lincoln, and no evil intent, that had brought me in. When they finally came to that conclusion, they took me around to one of the basement doors on the east side and let me out. I got a place in front of Mr. Lincoln, and heard every word. The precautions taken against the long-threatened attack on Lincoln's life produced various impressions on the throng. Opponents scornfully insisted that the new administration was scared. Radical Republicans rejoiced. I was thoroughly convinced at the time, says the Honorable James Harlan, at that time a senator from Iowa, that Mr. Lincoln's enemies meant what they said and that General Scott's determination that the inauguration should go off peaceably prevented any hostile demonstration. Other supporters of Mr. Lincoln felt differently nothing could have been more ill-advised or more ostentatious wrote the public man that night in his diary than the way in which the troops were thrust everywhere upon the public attention even to the roofs of the houses on pennsylvania avenue on which little squads of sharpshooters were absurdly stationed I never expected to experience such a sense of mortification and shame in my own country as I felt today, in entering the capital through hedges of marines armed to the teeth. Fortunately, all passed off well, but it is appalling to think of the mischief which might have been done by a single evil-disposed person today. A blank cartridge fired from a window on Pennsylvania Avenue might have disconcerted all our hopes and thrown the whole country into inextricable confusion. That nothing of the sort was done, or even so much as attempted, is the most conclusive evidence that could be asked of the groundlessness of the rumors and old women's tales on the strength of which General Scott has been led into this great mistake. Arm-in-arm with Mr. Buchanan, Mr. Lincoln passed through the long tunnel erected for his protection, entered the Capitol, and passed into the Senate chamber, filled to overflowing with senators, members of the diplomatic corps, and visitors. The contrast between the two men as they entered struck every observer. Mr. Buchanan was so withered and bowed with age, wrote George W. Julian of Indiana, who was among the spectators that in contrast with the towering form of mr lincoln he seemed little more than half a man a few moments delay and the movement from the senate towards the east front began the justices of the supreme court in cap and gown heading the procession as soon as the large company was seated on the platform erected on the east portico of the capitol mr lincoln arose and advanced to the front where he was introduced by his friend senator baker of oregon He carried a cane and a little roll, the manuscript of his inaugural address. There was a moment's pause after the introduction, as he vainly looked for a spot where he might place his high silk hat. Stephen A. Douglas, the political antagonist of his whole public life, the man who had pressed him hardest in the campaign of 1860, was seated just behind him. Douglas stepped forward quickly and took the hat which Mr. Lincoln held helplessly in his hand if i can't be president he whispered smilingly to mrs brown a cousin of mrs lincoln and a member of the president's party i can at least hold his hat this simple act of courtesy was really the most significant incident of the day and after the inaugural the most discussed douglas's conduct cannot be overpraised wrote the public man in his diary I saw him for a moment in the morning when he told me that he meant to put himself as prominently forward in the ceremonies as he properly could, and to leave no doubt on anyone's mind of his determination to stand by the new administration in the performance of its first great duty, to maintain the union. Adjusting his spectacles and unrolling his manuscript, the president-elect turned his eyes upon the faces of the throng before him, It was the largest gathering that had been seen at any inauguration up to that date, variously estimated at from 50,000 to 100,000. Who of the men that composed it were his friends, who his enemies, he could not tell. But he did know that almost every one of them was waiting with painful eagerness to hear what answer he would make there to the questions they had been hurling at his head since the election. Six weeks before, when he wrote the document, he had determined to answer some of their questions. The first of these was, Will Mr. Lincoln stand by the platform of the Republican Party? He meant to open his address with this reply. The more modern custom of electing a chief magistrate upon a previously declared platform of principles supersedes in a great measure the necessity of restating those principles in an address of this sort. Upon the plainest grounds of good faith, one so elected is not at liberty to shift his position. Having been so elected upon the Chicago platform, and while I would repeat nothing in it of aspersion or epithet or question of motive against any man or party, I hold myself bound by duty, as well as impelled by inclination, to follow, within the executive sphere, the principles therein declared." By no other course could I meet the reasonable expectations of the country. But these paragraphs were not read. On reaching Washington in February, Mr. Lincoln's first act had been to give to Mr. Seward a copy of the paper he had prepared, and to ask for his criticisms. Of the paragraphs quoted above, Mr. Seward wrote, I declare to you my conviction that the second and third paragraphs even if modified as I propose in my amendments, would give such advantage to the disunionists that Virginia and Maryland will secede, and we shall, within 90, perhaps within 60 days, be obliged to fight the South for this capital, with a divided North for our reliance. Mr. Lincoln dropped the paragraphs, and began by answering another question. Does the President intend to interfere with the property of the South? Apprehension seems to exist, he said, among the people of the southern states, that by the accession of a republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. Indeed, the most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed and been open to their inspection. It is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you, I do but quote from one of those speeches when I declare that I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Those who nominated and elected me did so with full knowledge that I had made this and many similar declarations and had never recanted them he followed this conciliatory statement by full answer to the question will mr lincoln repeal the fugitive slave laws there is much controversy about the delivering up of fugitives from service or labor the clause i now read is as plainly written in the constitution as any other of its provisions no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due it is scarcely questioned that this provision was intended by those who made it for the reclaiming of what we call fugitive slaves and the intention of the lawgiver is the law. All members of Congress swear their support to the whole Constitution, to this provision as much as to any other. To the proposition, then, that slaves whose cases come within the terms of this clause shall be delivered up, their oaths are unanimous. Next, he took up the question of secession. Has a state the right to go out of the Union if it wants to? I hold that, in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. Again, if the United States be not a government proper, but an association of states in the nature of contract merely, can it, as a contract, be peaceably unmade by less than all the parties who made it? One party to a contract may violate it, break it, so to speak, but does it not require all to lawfully rescind it? It follows from these views that no state, upon its own mere motion, can lawfully get out of the Union that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states, against the authority of the United States, are insurrectionary or revolutionary, according to the circumstances. The answer to this question led him directly to the point on which the public was most deeply stirred at that moment, What did he intend to do about enforcing laws in states which had repudiated federal authority? What about the property seized by the southern states? To the extent of my ability, he answered, I shall take care, as the Constitution itself expressly enjoins upon me, that the laws of the Union be faithfully executed in all the states." doing this i deem to be only a simple duty on my part and i shall perform it so far as practicable unless my rightful masters the american people shall withhold the requisite means or in some authoritative manner direct the contrary i trust this will not be regarded as a menace but only as the declared purpose of the union that it will constitutionally defend and maintain itself In doing this, there needs to be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none, unless it be forced upon the national authority. The power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government, and to collect the duties and imposts. But beyond what may be necessary for these objects, there will be no invasion, no using of force against or among the people anywhere. In his original copy of the inaugural address, Mr. Lincoln wrote, All the power at my disposal will be used to reclaim the public property and places which have fallen, to hold, occupy, and possess these, and all other property and places belonging to the government. At the suggestion of his friend, the Honorable O. H. Browning of Illinois, he dropped the words, To reclaim the public property and places which have fallen mr seward disapproved of the entire selection and prepared a non-committal substitute mr lincoln however retained his own sentences the foregoing quotations are a fairly complete expression of what may be called mr lincoln's policy at the beginning of his administration He followed this statement of his principle by an appeal and a warning to those who really loved the Union and who yet were ready for the destruction of the national fabric with all its benefits, its memories, and its hopes. Will you hazard so desperate a step while there is any possibility that any portion of the ills you fly from have no real existence? will you while the certain ills you fly to are greater than all the real ones you fly from will you risk the commission of so fearful a mistake physically speaking we cannot separate we cannot remove our respective sections from each other nor build an impassable wall between them a husband and wife may be divorced and go out of the presence and beyond the reach of each other but the different parts of our country cannot do this They cannot but remain face-to-face, and intercourse, whether amicable or hostile, must continue between them. Is it possible, then, to make that intercourse more advantageous or more satisfactory after separation than before? Can aliens make treaties easier than friends can make laws? Can treaties be more faithfully enforced between aliens than laws can among friends? Suppose you go to war. You cannot fight always, and when, after much loss on both sides, and no gain on either, you cease fighting, the identical old questions as to terms of intercourse are again upon you. Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Is there any better or equal hope in the world? In our present differences is either party without faith of being in the right, If the Almighty Ruler of Nations, with his eternal truth and justice, be on your side of the North or on yours of the South, that truth and that justice will surely prevail by the judgment of this great tribunal of the American people. My countrymen, one and all, think calmly and well upon this whole subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be an object to hurry any of you in hot haste to a step which you would never take deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time, but no good object can be frustrated by it. Such of you as are now dissatisfied still have the old constitution unimpaired, and, on the sensitive point, the laws of your own framing under it while the new administration will have no immediate power, if it would, to change either. If it were admitted that you who are dissatisfied hold the right side in the dispute, there still is no single good reason for precipitate action. Intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulty. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. With this last paragraph, Mr. Lincoln had meant to close this, his first address to the nation. Mr. Seward objected, and submitted two suggestions for a closing. One of his paragraphs reads as follows. I close. We are not, we must not be, aliens or enemies, but fellow countrymen and brethren. Although passion has strained our bonds of affection too hardly, they must not, I am sure they will not, be broken. The mystic chords which proceeding from so many battlefields and so many patriotic graves, pass through all the hearts and all hearths in this broad continent of ours, will yet again harmonize in their ancient music when breathed upon by the guardian angel of the nation. Mr. Lincoln made a few changes in the paragraphs quoted and rewrote the above suggestion of Mr. Seward, making of it the now famous closing words. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Mr. Lincoln read his inaugural, says Mr. Harlan in his unpublished Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, in a clear, distinct, and musical voice which seemed to be heard and distinctly understood to the very outskirts of this vast concourse of his fellow citizens. At its conclusion, he turned partially around on his left, facing the justices of the Supreme Court, and said, I am now ready to take the oath prescribed by the Constitution, which was then administered by Chief Justice Taney, the President saluting the Bible with his lips. At that moment, in response to a signal, batteries of field guns, stationed a mile or so away, commenced firing a national salute in honor of the nation's new chief, and Mr. Buchanan, now a private citizen, escorted President Lincoln to the executive mansion, followed by a multitude of people. What do you think of it? was the question this crowd was asking as it left the scene of the inauguration. Throughout the day on every corner of Washington, and by night on every corner of New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Buffalo, and every other city and town of the country reached by the telegraph, men were asking the same question. The answers showed that the address was not the equivocal document Mr. Seward had tried to make it it is marked said the new york tribune of march fifth by no feeble expression he who runs may read it and to twenty millions of people it will carry the tidings good or not as the case may be that the federal government of the united states is still in existence with a man at the head of it the inaugural is not a crude performance said the new york herald it abounds in traits of craft and cunning it is neither candid nor statesmanlike, nor does it possess any essential of dignity or patriotism. It would have caused a Washington to mourn and would have inspired Jefferson, Madison, or Jackson with contempt. Our community has not been disappointed and exhibited very little feeling on the subject, telegraphed Charleston, South Carolina. They are content to leave Mr. Lincoln in the inaugural in the hands of Jefferson Davis and the Congress of the Confederate States. The Pennsylvanian declared it a tiger's claw concealed under the fur of Sewardism, while the Atlas and Argus of Albany characterized it as weak, rambling, loose-jointed, and as inviting civil war. From Charleston, South Carolina, came the dispatch. Our community has not been disappointed and exhibited very little feeling on the subject. They are content to leave Mr. Lincoln in the inaugural in the hands of Jefferson Davis and the Congress of the Confederate States. In New Orleans, the assertion that the ordinance was void and that federal property must be taken and held was considered a declaration of war. At Montgomery, the head of the Confederacy, the universal feeling provoked by the inaugural was that war was inevitable. The literary form of the document aroused general comment the style of the address is as characteristic as its temper said the boston transcript it has not one fawning expression in the whole course of its firm and explicit statements the language is level to the popular mind the plain homespun language of a man accustomed to talk with the folks and the neighbors the language of a man of vital common sense whose words exactly fit in his facts and thoughts This homespun language was a shock to many. The Toronto Globe found the address of a tawdry, corrupt, schoolboy style. An ex-president Tyler complained to Francis Lieber of its grammar. Lieber replied, You complain of the bad grammar of President Lincoln's message. We have to look at other things just now than grammar. For aught I know, the last resolution of the South Carolina Convention may have been worded in sufficiently good grammar, but it is an attempt, unique in its disgracefulness, to whitewash an act of the dirtiest infamy. Let us leave grammar alone in these days of shame, and rather ask whether people act according to the first and simplest rules of morals and of honor. The question which most deeply stirred the country, however, was, does Lincoln mean what he says? Will he really use the power confided to him to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government? The president was called upon for an answer sooner than he had expected. Almost the first thing brought to his attention on the morning of his first full day in office, March 5th was a letter from Major Robert Anderson, the officer in command of Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, saying that he had but a week's provisions, and that if the place was to be reinforced so that it could be held, it would take 20,000 good and well-disciplined men to do it. A graver matter the new president could not have been called upon to decide. For all the issues between North and South were at that moment focused in the fate of Fort Sumter a series of dramatic incidents had given the fort this peculiar prominence at the time of mr lincoln's election charleston harbor was commanded by major anderson although there were three forts in the harbor but one was garrisoned fort moultrie and that not the strongest in position Not long after the election, Anderson, himself a Southerner, thoroughly familiar with the feeling in Charleston, wrote the War Department that if the harbor was to be held by the United States, Fort Sumter and Castle Pinckney must be garrisoned. Later, he repeated this warning. President Buchanan was loath to heed him. He feared irritating the South Carolinians. Instead of reinforcements, he sent Anderson orders to hold the forts, but to do nothing which would cause a collision. At the same time, he entered into a half-contract with the South Carolina congressman not to reinforce Anderson if the state did not attack him. All through the early winter, Anderson remained in Moultrie, his position constantly becoming more dangerous interest in him increased with his peril, and the discussion as to whether the government should relieve, recall, or let him alone waxed more and more excited. Anderson had seen from the first that if the South Carolinians attempted to seize Moultrie, he could not sustain his position. Accordingly, on the night of December 26th, he spiked the guns of that fort and secretly transferred his force to Sumter, an almost impregnable position in the center of the harbor in the south the uproar over this act was terrific the administration was accused of treachery it in turn censured anderson though he had acted exactly within his orders which gave him the right to occupy whichever fort he thought best in the north there was an outburst of exultation it was the first act in defense of United States property, and Anderson became at once a popular hero, and reinforcements for him were vehemently demanded. Early in January, Buchanan yielded to the pressure and sent the Star of the West with supplies. The vessel was fired upon by the South Carolinians as she entered the harbor and retired. This hostile act did not quicken the sluggish blood of the administration. Indeed, a quasi-agreement with the governor followed that, if the fort was not attacked, no further attempt would be made to reinforce it. And there the matter stood, when Mr. Lincoln, on the morning of March 5th, received Anderson's letter. What was to be done? The garrison must not be allowed to starve, but evidently 20,000 disciplined men could not be had to relieve it. The whole United States army numbered but 16,000 but if Mr. Lincoln could not relieve it, how could he surrender it? The effect of any weakening or compromise in his own position was perfectly clear to him. When Anderson goes out of Fort Sumter, he said ruefully, I shall have to go out of the White House. The exact way in which he looked at the matter he stated later to Congress in substantially the following words to abandon that position under the circumstances would have been utterly ruinous the necessity under which it was done would not have been fully understood by many it would have been construed as a part of a voluntary policy at home it would have discouraged the friends of the union emboldened its adversaries and gone far to ensure to the latter a recognition abroad in fact it would have been our national destruction consummated This could not be allowed. In his dilemma, he sought the advice of the commander-in-chief of the army, General Scott, who told him sadly that evacuation seemed almost inevitable. Unwilling to decide at once, Lincoln devised a maneuver by which he hoped to shift public attention from Fort Sumter to Fort Pickens in Pensacola Harbor. The situation of the two forts was similar, although that at Sumter was more critical and interested the public far more intensely. It seemed to Mr. Lincoln that if Fort Pickens could be reinforced, this would be a clear enough indication to both sections that he meant what he had said in his inaugural address, and after it had been accomplished, the North would accept the evacuation of Fort Sumter as a military necessity and on march eleventh he sent an order that troops which had been sent to pensacola in january by mr buchanan but never landed should be placed in fort pickens end of section one